Anyway, let's, uh, let's start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you because we seek your face and we, we want to be taught by you. And we want to go your way and not the way of the flesh, not the way of our own sense, not the way of the world around us. We want to go your way. We pray that you will open our eyes to your word and that you will teach us and that you will bring us through. And that you will bring us through finally to everlasting life in a new system when all this around us is no more. Pray, Father, for all those with their accommodation issues, those who've lost their relationships with pets, with partners, with children. We pray that you'd be with them all. We pray for those who are usually here, who are not here today, that you'd be with them in whatever is, uh, is going on with them. And we pray that you give each of us meetings with people whom we can help to you and to your son, that we might be a light in the darkness of this world. Please do go with us all and bless the baptisms that we're planning this afternoon and may all that work out, Father. And we pray that you'll just guide us all to the end. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Right, well, I'm going to carry on with um, talking about Saul and David. And if you've been following through the last, uh, the last while, I've been saying that David, that David was uh, a godly man, but he wasn't perfect. And he was persecuted by Saul. And Saul was a king of Israel, but God had said to Saul, you're not going to be king anymore. David's going to be king. So Saul could have just said, okay, fine, I'm not the right guy really for the job. God bless you, David. And Saul could have lived quietly the rest of his days, walked humbly with his God and been saved. But, oh no, he wanted to hold on to his power. Typical of uh, difficult men who want to do that, and women for that matter. And in chapter 24, he's hiding from Saul in a cave. And Saul comes into the cave to go to the toilet. And he takes off his kingly robe to squat down and go to the toilet. And while he is doing that, David sneaks after him and cuts off the bottom of his kingly robe. And he doesn't kill him. And his men say, go on, David, kill him. Here's your chance. He goes, no, I'm not going to do that. I won't touch the Lord's anointed. And we think, good on you, David. And he comes out afterwards, says, Saul is, you know, I could have killed you, mate, but I didn't. Here's a bit of your robe to prove that. So you see that David showed him grace. He showed him grace and forgiveness. And you think, oh, what a good, good guy David was. But the next chapter... David's hungry, and the guys that are with him, and they send a message to a guy called Nabal, and they say, could you please um, give us some food? Nabal's drunk, and he says, no, I'm not giving you any food. David gets mad, and he says to his guys, put your, put your swords on, let's go and kill this Nabal, and his wife, and his kids, and his animals, completely. And then Nabal's wife, Abigail, comes to David and says, look, come down, cool, mate, but don't do that. Don't do that. Don't get innocent blood on your hands. And he goes, oh, you're right. I'm very sorry. Yeah, yeah, I won't do that. He comes down, cool. And what I said was, that, okay, when he apparently forgives Saul, yeah, very good, and he spares Saul, but he transfers his anger onto this random guy, Nabal. And I gave the example that you could be in a supermarket waiting to pay at the checkout, and there's the checkout chick um, texting furiously with somebody. 
And she's obviously very upset about it. So it comes to your turn and she starts yelling at you. You're like, excuse me, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just here. She's transferred her anger with her ex or whatever it is she's texting onto you, poor you, who are nothing to do with it. And this happens all the time. So what should David have done? He should have totally forgiven. He should have totally forgiven and, and broken the circle. But instead, although, yeah, he did forgive, he transferred that anger onto, onto this guy Nabal. Well, now, in chapter 26, God gives him another opportunity in a very similar situation where he can spare Saul's life or not. And you see that is how life goes. That sometimes God tests you in a certain way and then he sees how you respond and then a bit later in your life you get a similar test. Let's say you're living in a flat and you've got these terrible neighbours who are beating up on your kids, who are playing loud music all through the night, who are being a general pain, threatening you, being crazy and so forth. And you're suffering with these terrible neighbours. Well, eventually the situation gets resolved. But you know what? Five years later, you're living in another block of flats. And lo and behold, again you've got awful neighbours. And why is why did it repeat? Or you, you, your, your ex might have been this, that or the other. Your ex might have said something particularly irritating and hurtful to you. And, well, that person becomes your ex, then you get the new partner, and the new partner ends up being the same. You think, oh, hey. That's not chance. Nothing's chance in our lives. There's no random in your life. Let's say you've got a... Let's imagine that you've got a, a, a big scar somewhere on your cheek. And your ex used to say, oh, you ugly so-and-so, you've got that, you, you've got that great big scar, you look like a, like a cyclops. <laughs> and it used to really hurt you that your ex said, you, you've got a, your scar on your cheek or whatever makes you look like a dragon. It really hurt you. And I'd say, well, you divorce and you remarry, and then ten years later, your new partner says to you, you know that scar you've got, you don't know if look like a dragon with that thing. You think, eh, again. What I'm saying is that all that stuff, all that stuff, in the, there's a bigger hand here, right? God's tested you in that area. You may or may not have responded. Maybe you responded not totally badly, not totally well. And then he brings the situation back into your life. That's because God loves you. Because he's got a plan for you. Because he's teaching you. To be a disciple, the word disciple means to be a student. We're studying, we're going through, we're learning. Right, so, the Ziphites come to Saul, David's on the run, they come to him to, in Gibeah, and they say, isn't David hiding in the hill of Hakalah in the desert? But Saul goes down to the wilderness of Ziph and takes 3,000 men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness. That's just what happened in chapter 24. Again, the men of Ziph go to, uh, to uh, Saul and say, ah, oh, David's hiding in such and such a place, why don't you come and get him? Saul's like, ah, oh, thanks guys, and takes 3,000 men to try and find him. The situation repeats very clearly. 
Well, Saul was camping by the road on the hill of Hakalah that David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw Saul had come after him into the wilderness, David set out and came to the place where Saul had encamped. He saw the place where Saul and Abner, the son of Ner, the captain of his army, were lying. Saul lay at the centre of the wagons, and the people were encamped in circles around him. David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai, the son of Zedawiah, Who will go down upon Saul with me? Abishai said, I will. David, it's not like it was before, where Saul uh, sort of bumped into David. Here you have David taking the initiative, and he says, I'm going to go down. I'm going to go and basically kill Saul. Who wants to come down with me upon Saul? Well, chapter 24, he says, I could kill Saul, but I won't. And then, oh yeah, I'm sorry about that. And then he, he lets Saul off. Then in, with Nabal, he says, oh, I, uh, I could kill him, but I, okay, I won't. Now he says, okay, I'm going to kill Saul. So you see how human behavior is. One minute you're strong in faith. One minute you're strong against temptation. Next minute you're not. And you fall flat on your face. And the next minute, oh, you're strong again. And then the next day you're weak. It's an endless cycle. That's what I hate about being human. I don't want to be human. I don't want to have that up and down spirituality. That's one of the great things we look forward to about being in the kingdom of God when we shall be changed and we shall be different and we shall be up all the time. Not this up and down, which I'm afraid goes with being human. So David and Abishai came to the army by night and Saul was sleeping among the wagons. He's got 3,000 men in circles all around him. The guy's paranoid, right? He's paranoid he might get killed. And he's sleeping with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the soldiers lay around him. They're all in circles around him. Abishai said to David, my guess, whispering, God has delivered your enemy into your hand today. Therefore, please let me strike him to the ground with one stroke of my spear. I won't strike him a second time. David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. For who can put forth his hand against Yahweh's anointed and be guiltless? As Yahweh lives, Yahweh will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he'll go down into battle and perish. It's the same word in Hebrew, by the way, for when it says that David said, who's going to go down with me to attack Saul? Yahweh forbid that I should put forth my hand against Yahweh's anointed. But now please get the spear that is at his head and the jar for water, urine, and let us go. What's going on here? Don't tell me the Bible's not interesting. Very interesting. So, David has gone down there to kill Saul. They get there and there's Saul lying asleep. And his head is lying on the ground and his spear is stuck in the ground next to his head. It's like an invitation. Pick up the spear, bonk, end of Saul. End of story. And so David has gone down there to kill Saul. But when he gets there, he says, nah. But his, his man who's with him, Abishai, who's actually his nephew, says to him, oh, okay, if you don't want to do it, I'll do it, I'll do it for you. David says, no, don't do it. So, well done, David. At the very last minute, when he's in, you know, he's planned to do this, he's planned to kill Saul, he pulls back. You know, 
That is like when you're faced with temptation. Do you want this drug? Do you want this? And you say, yes, uh, uh, no, I won't. You know, when you come to temptation and say, no. That is what it is to be a Christian. To be strong against temptation. So well done, David. And not only well done, David, but the other guy, his nephew, says, oh, I'll do it for you. David says, no, don't. So if I was David, I would have thought, eh, I don't want to kill Saul. Oh, but Abishai, my nephew, says he'll kill Saul. Okay, let him do it. Then the blood is not on my hands, it's on Abishai's hands. But he says, God forbid that I should put forth my hand against Yahweh's anointed. So he's saying, I am not going to sin through somebody else, through using somebody else. And that's a big temptation, I think, to sin using somebody else. To say, well, I didn't do it. It's called vicarious sinning. You know, you can look at stuff on the screen that murder, adultery, you name it, perversion, so, well, I didn't do it. But you are doing it through something or somebody else. And here you see David is refusing to do that. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. But he says, let's take his spear and the jar for water, or urine. And why, why those two things? The spear was a symbol of Saul being the king. You can see it, actually, in a, the old pictures on the very old pennies, Victorian pennies. Queen Victoria is there, holding a spear, or trident. The spear was the symbol of being the king. And Saul is always with the spear. There's a chair here, mate. We're told he held the spear at his home. He was always clinging on to his spear. He threw his spear at David twice. So the spear was the symbol of him being king. And David takes this away from him. But what does he do with it? In the morning, he comes out of Saul across the valley and waves to him, sort of says, I've got your spear. Do you want it back? And Saul says, yeah, I want it back. Sends a young man over to get the spear. Why does he do that? It's because David actually was looking to try to get Saul to repent. He wanted Saul to say, oh, you've got my spear, you've got the symbol of my my being king. Sure, David, God wants you to be king. God doesn't want me to be king. He told me that twice. You take it. So David, although Saul was his enemy, he wanted Saul to repent. And we have all got enemies. We've all got people in our lives who've done bad to us. And it's natural to want to destroy them or to see God destroy them. But David wanted above everything that this guy should repent. He wanted him to repent. And that's, I think, a big test of our spirituality. If somebody is so against you, uh, we've all had people who've done us huge evil all got nasty people in their lives. The simple way to say, I want them to suffer. 
But actually, if you're a Christian, first of all, you want them to repent. Because you want their salvation. Even the worst people in your life. I want you to change. And why does he take Saul's jar for water? In those days, they didn't carry um, water with them in jugs. They carried it in, like, skins, not in jugs. You don't go on a journey through the desert holding a jug of water. That's not what you do. So this jug or jar for water or for urine, it's the same word in Hebrew, was for him to go to the Lewin. I mean, the guy of Saul now was an older guy. I'm sure that he had uh, prostate problems. Probably did need to go to the Lewin at night. And you remember when David lets Saul off before, it's when Saul's going to the toilet. And he cuts off part of his robe. And now he does something that is again sort of relevant to going to the toilet. Now, I'm not trying to be crude. I'm trying to understand why David did this. And it was to remind Saul that David knew his most intimate, Saul's most intimate and personal business, shall we say. So when you go to the loo, that's your most intimate and personal moment. And he, he does it because he wants Saul to repent. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. And no one saw it or knew about it. Neither did anyone wake up. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from Yahweh had fallen on them. So God had made them all go to sleep. He'd made them all go to sleep. That's why these concentric rings of soldiers all around Saul, nobody woke up. So, when David decides to go to Saul through all these rings of soldiers guarding Saul, and he gets right up to Saul, that was from God. God made them all go to sleep. So I think that God was saying to Saul, you can, you can, as God was saying to David, you can kill him. It's okay. I'll give you what you need. I'll make all the, uh, all the guards go to sleep. And there's Saul laying there with his spear right at his head. It's like a sort of an invitation, really, to pick that spear out of the ground and bonk, put it into Saul's head. So you could say that David was being set up to kill Saul. And you find this, you see, that God will give you an option sometimes whereby you can do a certain course of action. It's not necessarily a sin. You see, it's not all black and white. You must do this, you must not do that. You must be obedient, you must not be disobedient. Yes, it is about that. But it is also so that there's very often shades. There's very often various possibilities. You see somebody in need. Should I give him five pounds? Should I give him ten pounds? Should I give him twenty pounds? If you say, no, I'm not going to give him anything, I wouldn't say that's a sin. Um, but your range of response after that is over to you. 
And so it is here with David. He could have killed Saul. I think legitimately God was setting him up. You can kill him if you want. And he says, no, I won't. No, I won't do that. So you see that God sets it up like that because he wants relationship with us. That's why life is not always black and white. That's why decisions do not come down to a simple black and white, yes or no. Because God wants a relationship with you. So that you think. In Islam, which means submission, I just got to submit to the will of Allah. Simple. But there's no relationship there. But there is relationship with God... The, the true God, the God of the Bible, because he sets it up so that, look, there's a range of possible responses here. How far do you want to respond? And that is, I think, as I say, because he wants us to engage in thinking about him and to have a real live relationship with him. So, David went over to the other side and stood on the top of the hill far off a great space being between them. David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner. That's like Saul's general, like Saul's bodyguard, if you like. He said, don't you answer Abner. Abner answered, who are you who calls to the king? David said to Abner, aren't you a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? One man came in to destroy the king, your lord. Who was that one man? That one man was David. David had come to kill Saul, but the last minute he rethought it. And he, you know, this is males, men, picking a fight. He's shouting across to Abner, saying, are you a man? Come on, are you a man? And he says, come on, you should have, you should have looked after Saul. And he says, what you've done is not good. As long as Yahweh lives, you are going to die because you've not kept watch over your Lord. Yahweh's anointed. Where did the king's spear and the jar of water that was at his head? Saul knew David's voice and said, is that your voice, my son David? David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. Just as happened in chapter 24. As I say, the two things are repeating themselves. My point is, Abner says nothing. Why didn't Abner look after Saul? Because God made Abner go to sleep. That's why he doesn't have any, op- any, any answer. But was David reasonable in yelling at Abner, you, come on, you're not even a man, are you? You deserve to die because you didn't look after Saul. Why didn't you look after Saul? Well, it wasn't Abner's fault. God had made Abner go to sleep so that he didn't wake up. It wasn't Abner's fault. Let alone for David to start yelling, basically, I'm going to kill you. You deserve to die. I will kill you. That's a ridiculous response. Why does David do that? What is the answer? David was mad angry with Saul, of course. And he wanted to kill Saul. But he holds himself back and says, okay, I won't do it. But he transfers that death wish onto this fairly random guy, Abner. All right, I'm not going to kill Saul, but I'm going to kill you, Abner. Abner was nothing to do with it. It wasn't his fault. And later on, Abner actually comes over onto David's side. And when Abner dies, 
David like does this eulogy at the funeral where he says Abner was a wonderful guy he was a top bloke he was a, he was a great man so you see when he held himself back from sinning against Saul killing Saul let's say put it that way yes very good David but you simply transferred your death wish onto another fairly random guy this is the same as the guy, the man who comes in from work because he's had a hard day in the office and he's got beat up by people and he comes home and he kicks the family cat. He kicks the family cat because he's taken out his anger with some fellow at work onto the cat who was neither here nor there. Now there we are, you and me, in this world wondering why life is as it is why are people angry with me why is she angry with him and he's angry with them uh, you try and make sense of life try to work it out and you don't need to read psychology just read the bible slowly and carefully you see all this stuff but what should David have done you see if he had totally forgiven Saul if he had totally said, right, I'm going to break the circle. The vicious circle is not going to go on anymore. I break the circle. Then he wouldn't have done all this business of transferring his anger with Saul onto Abner like he transferred his anger with Saul onto Nabal and all that sort of stuff. That's what, in the end, we have to do. And it's only through your experience of God's grace in Jesus that you can do this. There's no other motivation in life to make you do that. So, I suggest that there's, often you, you, you see it with people that they, they appear to make great spiritual progress in one area, but actually it's nuanced. For example, the alcoholic says, you know what Duncan, I don't drink alcohol anymore. I promise you, I don't drink alcohol. Yeah, you don't, well done. But, you started on crack cocaine. The person who's on the crack cocaine says, you know what, Duncan, I don't do crack cocaine anymore. Well done. But, they're getting drunk every night on, you know, vodka they nicked out of Poundland or whatever. You see that? People say, oh, I, I, I've forgiven her. They talk about their ex. So I've forgiven him. Yes, so you say. But you're so bitter, angry and cranky with everybody else in your life. I don't think you've quite got there. You know? And you, you, you realise that man at his best, you at your best, me at my best, at our most generous, our most forgiving, our most pious, our most spiritual. As Isaiah says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Because I'm afraid it is all nuanced. And yet, you know, despite all this with David, God says about David, he was a man after my own heart. And God says, I love David. David loved me. So don't beat yourself up that you're not perfect, and don't beat yourself up that your motivations are maybe not totally 100%. David's weren't, were they? But God still counted him as loving him and having a good heart. That's the next step. Um, David then talks to Saul shouts to Saul he says why does my lord pursue his servant what have I done what evil am I guilty of 
Please just hear me. If Yahweh, that's God, if God has stirred you up against me to judge me, let him accept an offering. But if it's men who've done it, that is, men telling you, Saul, that I'm trying to kill you, I'm a bad guy or whatever, um, may they be cursed. Well, the first thing he says, if you're chasing me, Saul, and beating me up because of some sin, well, just tell me what the sin is, and I'll offer the sacrifice, and the sin will be will disappear, and you don't have to judge me anymore. When you think about it, <coughs> that's too simplistic. Too simple. He thinks that, yeah, if you just do something wrong, well, yeah, you just offer a sacrifice, the sin is dealt with, there are no more consequences, and I have no more judgment. And I think that is why, later on, David sins with Bathsheba, he has an affair with a woman next door, kills her husband. And he comes to God and he says, there is no sacrifice, is there, that I can offer? And he has to suffer the consequence of that. So, again, beware that you don't think that, oh, yeah, you know, I sinned, but quick transaction, oh, yeah, well, Jesus died for my sins, right? Oh, God forgive me, yeah, all, all, all done. One message of the cross of the death of the Lord uh, and the, the cost of our redemption is that it's not as simple as that. Like David is saying, oh yeah, you, you do a whoopsie, you mess up, oh yeah, well, um, just say sorry, God, and, you know, uh, yeah, Jesus will sort it out and, and play on. Well, uh, yes, that is true, finally, but it's not as just a quick transaction. It's not a ritual that just deals with sin. And that's, I think, although God didn't want him to sin with Bathsheba, God used that to teach him that this wasn't quite the case. But then he goes on and says, well, maybe, and he says this to Saul in chapter 24, maybe you're just misinformed. Maybe people have told you that I'm a bad guy. No, he's trying to whitewash Saul by saying that. He's trying to say, oh, yeah, poor guy, you're just misinformed. That's the silliest saying that Adolf Hitler was a good bloke, but yeah, he was slightly misinformed. Yeah, he was slightly misinformed. And it's the same with Saul. He was not a bit misinformed. He was just eaten up with personal jealousy. It is fault. Misinformed. And so I see that a bit, that he's tried, David's trying to just whitewash him. I've seen that again with someone who, who may have suffered a huge amount from an individual... And that individual did huge, hugely wrong things to them. And you talk to them about that person, and they say, oh, well, he was actually quite a good bloke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, he sinned, but no, no, he's a very nice person. And you think, you're whitewashing the person. You're just pretending the issue isn't there. And again, I think that's a bit how it was with David and Saul. And what does Saul say? Saul says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, I'll no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes today. I've played the fool, and I've earned very seriously. Just as Samuel had said to him, you have done foolishly by what you have done. Yeah. Saul says it, I have sinned. That is exactly the words of Judas Iscariot before he committed suicide. I have sinned, I betrayed Jesus. It's the words of Pharaoh after one of the plagues, when he says, oh Moses, I've sinned. Now, what it shows then, is that 
a human being can have a moment of repentance, a moment of sorrow, a moment of regret, a moment of very high spirituality that may last one hour at a church service. It may possibly last 24 hours, and then it's gone. And there's a lot of that feel-good religion, where you feel good, or you get to a certain point of repentance and self-knowledge, but it doesn't stay. Paul in the New Testament talks about this, and he says, you need to have a repentance not to be repented of. To repent means to rethink. But he's saying, you should have a repentance that you will not repent of. In other words, it's not a case of coming to a church service and getting on a peak of a moment of emotion or whatever. Oh, I am a, such a sinner. Yeah, that's good you feel like that. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be saved. Oh, yeah, it's good you feel like that. But you see, even Saul could say, say all the right words and, and mean it from his heart. He meant this. I have sinned. Yes, I am foolish. Yeah, he meant it. He wasn't lying. He, he, he genuinely meant it. But the problem is that he didn't keep it. And that's a problem with, I'm not against church, but it's a problem with just depending on going to church. That you go, you have certain feelings at that moment of commitment, of praise, of gratitude, of repentance, and so on. But then, Sunday night, Monday morning, back to where you were. And that, that's a problem in, in the, being in the rhythm of attending church service where that's all there is to your spiritual life, to your Christian life. You see the problem here with Saul. And he says to David, return. Come back. Come back and live with me in Gibeah like you used to. Come back and live with me. Come back and live with me. Return and live with me. And does David do that? What happens? Does David go back and live with Saul in Gibeah? David went on his way back to living in the wilderness and Saul returned home. David doesn't return with him. He says, I've sinned, I'll return my son David. No, Saul returned home, but David didn't. Not likely, mate. And so you see that forgiveness is not the same as life together. Forgiveness is not the same as trust. You can forgive somebody. But you do not have to trust them, and you do not have to live with them. You do not have to be in relationship with them. And people beat themselves up, oh, I, I, I'm not forgiving enough, I haven't forgiven. But I think that's often because they think that forgiveness means that I, I, you know, I trust you. Forgiveness means that we're going to be together again like it was before. No. That may happen if the person rebuilds your you trust in them. Yeah, it's possible over a period of time. But forgiveness as forgiveness, we should give. Just like that. Because how else are you going to live? So I'm not going to forgive you. That's right. So you forgive. But you, that is not the same as trust. And I like this thing we saw here. David. He said, Saul says, I'm so sorry, David. I've persecuted you. I made a mess of your life. I'm so sorry. I'm a fool. Come on, return. Come on, come back and live with me in the palace. Not likely, mate. He doesn't. He 
Saul returns home, but David goes back and lives in the, in the desert. Better to live in the desert and live with a, a psycho like, like Saul. Like was a psycho. And so, that's a thing. We're going to remember the Lord Jesus. We're going to remember his body and his blood. And I'm just going to give a prayer of thanks for the bread and the juice. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for his body and for his blood, for his work for us. And we pray, Father, that we truly might, from pure hearts, follow him to the end. For his sake. Amen. Amen.